Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. How is life all the way across the country from me in Maryland? It is going pretty well. The weather is starting to change and we are getting ready for fall. Yes, we are too. And I like it. Fall's my favorite season. I think. Well, I have, I have favorite things about all the seasons, but I really enjoy fall. So Melissa, I have a question for you. Is there something you remember believing as a child that wasn't exactly true? I do. And it's actually adoption related. So I am the oldest of three children and all of us were adopted from Korea. And then we had friends on our block who also adopted children from Korea after my youngest sister came home. And so all of my early memories of siblings joining people's families were of going to the airport and having little airport parties. You know, obviously it was before 9-11 and you could actually walk right up to the gate where people were coming out. You know, every time we adopted or a friend of ours adopted, we would get food and cake and balloons and we would all go hang out at the airport and wait for the plane to come in so that we could welcome the new baby. And so I remember as a little girl thinking that new babies always came from airports to join families because it was the only thing I had ever known. That's really funny. That's very, very sweet. I do think that there are a lot of kids in big adoptive families who think babies do come from either from airports or they arrive with a social worker or something other than what most of us uh, outside of that world would experience. So today, we are sharing an interview that you did with our friend, Rebecca Volley. She's a friend of both of ours, so it was kind of a debate on which one of us got to interview her, but um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what she had to say. Well, I'm glad I won that coin toss because I do love Rebecca, and Rebecca and I talked about something that a lot of us thought probably as baby adopters, which, you know, back when we were naive and starry-eyed, which was that newborn adoptions were easier. And Rebecca is the founder and director of the Family to Family Support Network. Family to Family is a nonprofit who offers the only curriculum that trains healthcare professionals in the intricacies of adoption, adoption loss, Um, It also helps participants define and manage their personal bias against, you know, possibly adoption or other things. Um, She is tirelessly working on Capitol Hill for funding and for different legislation to just help practitioners and hospitals be more trauma-informed and be more sensitive to some of the challenges that women face when thinking about their parenting decisions. And she is really a huge advocate for ethical adoption resources. I can't wait to hear from Rebecca. Let's jump right to the interview. All right, Rebecca. So when Lisa and I were thinking about things that we thought our audience would find really useful, um, one of the myths that I hear floating around out there so often is we're going to just adopt an infant and kind of, I feel like people think that's a way to bypass some of the things. And we certainly thought that there were ways to bypass things. You know, we adopted a toddler, we adopted someone who looked like me. So I am definitely in that camp. But I just remembered back to some conversations we had had about how your kids came to you 
pretty young and you can tell us a little bit about that in a sec, but you have walked some of the same struggles that those of us who have adopted older kids had. And so just thought it would be useful maybe to talk about what it is like to bring an infant home, maybe even from the hospital and, you know, some of the unique situations that that brings just that experience. And then kind of what that looks like as your kid's develop, get older, process. There is still a trauma there. Right, right. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, I love this. Definitely, um, there is the misconception that if you adopt a newborn, if it's domestic infant adoption, um, you even get your list of, you know, what you will quote unquote, you know, accept with what your kids have been through. And um, we definitely went into domestic newborn thinking that we would just, we'd kind of joke, we checked the box. So we wouldn't have issues later. Um, we could do openness and that would give us so much of the identity piece for our kids. It's been really challenging because what we weren't told, and my kids are now 20 and 18 and 16, and 20 years ago, we were either not told or not, we didn't spend a lot of time on it in training, was the in utero experience and um, stress in utero and what that does and how so much of the information I learned later from people like yourself, Melissa, about what kids have gone through in international or foster care, et cetera, I was seeing those same struggles for my own kids. And it wasn't until I heard Brian Post and Heather Forbes present when my daughter was eight that I sat in the back of the room. I was running a hospital program at that point for adoption. And I listened to them talk and I thought, oh my gosh, this is our life. Like this is how our kids react to us. And um, especially my daughter at that point was eight and I just didn't have these tools and I was never offered them. And if I ever talked about any kind of struggle, the response I would get is, well, but I thought you got them as babies. And we just really for decades discounted that, that kind of blank slate concept. And now that we understand it, we parent completely different than we would have ever imagined we would, but it's, wholly effective because of that, because we understand that template falls over our kids as well. So Rebecca, back up and just tell us, so your kids are older now, but at what ages did they come into your family? So uh, we met our daughter when she was four hours old. We'd actually just finished our home study the Thursday before. So we had little to no time. And then um, our son, our second child came home at three and a half months and he'd been being parented by his um, birth mom at that point. Um, And she just was working to pay daycare and struggling and really felt that what she had been kind of expecting from the father was not happening. And so she chose to place him with us. And so he transitioned into our home. And then we met our youngest son, his birth mom, when she was seven weeks pregnant. So we did the whole pregnancy with her and I was there at the delivery. And so my husband cut the cord. So we have three very different experiences, but And the hospital experience of how that led to attachment and bonding and whatnot is the core of my work now. But in all of those, there was this loss, the identity, the struggle. And I think when we don't acknowledge that, we don't use the information that we know about early trauma with other populations with this population. And as parents, when I found out that this is a trait of kids that have gone through early trauma... It was so freeing to know that it wasn't about us. You know, we'd gone through infertility. It's very easy to own a lot of that. This is why I wasn't a parent in the first place kind of thing. But it was very freeing to see there was a reason that they were wired the way they were and that we could have a relational discipline model that would help support them. 
And that was huge. And so I really, part of my work now is getting those tools in the hands of parents early on and making sure they understand that loss that child's going through as an infant. Yeah. So you said that you kind of stumbled across trauma-informed training and parenting. I mean, you had this job that put you in front of that place. I mean, it wasn't like you were looking for it. Um, So what was going on in your family in those eight years leading up to your discovery of trauma-informed care and interventions and parenting that made your ears perk up when you were listening to that presentation? Yeah, the first thing that struck me was the fact that my socially interactive daughter as a baby was actually a sign of hypervigilance and stress. And I had never, everyone just said, oh, she's so social and look at those big eyes. And um, I didn't know what hypervigilance even was. So I remember seeing a slide in Brian Post and again, Heather Forbes, um, their presentation that was this baby with eyes this big. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's my daughter. You know, I couldn't believe it. Um, And we just really had been down that love and logic. We're both teachers, big on consequences. You know, we did the timeout, we did the spankings, we did the tape, we had a bucket for all the toys that we took away when they didn't behave. And, you know, all these things that we were desperately trying to get our kids to, um, to behave. And it was all based in fear and threats and, you know, all those, oh, Again, love and logic only works if you can be logical. (laughs) And my kids really just really struggled with that. And so when I came back from that presentation, my husband being a high school teacher was like, what do you mean time in? Like, you're just, you're encouraging the behavior, you know, all that. And I started using the tools that I learned in this day long seminar. And all of a sudden things changed. We didn't have rages. We didn't have a fight that would have lasted hours, took, you know, 20 minutes where I would just sit down and find out what the core of the problem was. And so, um, it was really powerful. My husband was like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like what just happened there? (laughs) I was like, Ooh, watch this. I'm not even kidding, honey. Um, and now it's completely changed his teaching. He's extremely passionate about trauma informed um, classrooms and he teaches theater and, we had the opportunity to go and present to his staff last fall about understanding what kids have gone through and how their brains are structured different and what our environment around that fear creates in them behavior wise. And so he's a, he's one over as far as um, this being a really important understanding for people to have. I love when what we learn about our kids like starts to trickle out into all the other little pieces of our life. Yeah, I know. It's so cool. So I always think like, gosh, if government could just get a handle on this, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. we can save the world. Exactly. Well, and, and what's interesting is as I started doing more work around the country, I started seeing, you know, trauma-informed information in prisons in North Dakota and in a teen homeless shelter in Louisiana. And all of a sudden people were really taking this into account while they're caring for these kids or caring even again in the, in the justice system. And so I think we are having this awakening um, that when we think about, you know, ACE scores and the Kaiser information that talks about adverse childhood experiences, um, even sitting with healthcare workers and training them about, you know, I think they have two different thoughts. There's like the health outcomes from adverse childhood experiences and the scoring and all that that happened um, again with Kaiser in California decades ago. And that was really interesting to healthcare workers, but what they hadn't overlapped into is the brain structure. And so knowing that about their patients, especially in the ER, we had lots of conversations with the ER docs and nurses about, 
you know, what kind of behaviors are they seeing? Because, you know, when I have my daughter in the emergency room and they're telling her they're going to put an IV in her arm and they start threatening her um, and telling her, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to come in here one more time. And if I have to tie you down, I'll, I'm like, oh, stop. <laughs> you know, that is not <laughs> work in this moment, you know, but they don't understand that, that that is, it is an effect of the brain that it's not something that she's going to be able to stay regulated. So I do think it is starting to ripple effect out into really key places. Or it sounds like from your story that you were really relieved to hear this trauma-informed piece to kind of understand that it applied to you guys too. Was there a part of you that was also kind of mortified because you had checked the box that, you know, these were (laughs) going to be like trouble-free adoptions and, you know, was there a grief process there? Kind of how did that play out for you guys? You know, I, I don't think there was a grief process per se. I was so thankful that I understood what was happening. I felt so empowered is the best way probably to say it. And then so motivated to make sure other moms and dads got this information early um, because especially, and I, I think this is probably intertwined with a grieving question, because we came out of infertility, you grieve the loss of kind of that bio f- child and we never really grieved that. And so going into being parents of these three kids that came home as babies, you want to look like everybody else. And you want to, I often joke, you know, I just wanted to fill the crib. Like that's all that was really important. And I didn't understand all the nuances early on um, and what loss my children were going through and the importance of bonding in those early days and all of those things. I didn't know any of that. I really talk a lot about the families I meet early on in the process. Like I used to do a maybe we'll adopt class where you know, we got to deal with our stuff because it's going to bubble up in our parenting. And especially with our own kids going through their own losses, if I'm not dealing with my loss, it's just a hot mess. And so really kind of understanding and being able to look at that filter of loss over the whole concept empowers all of us to address it, you know, what is as opposed to just shoving it under the the carpet and trying to just look and be like everyone else um, as a form of healing. Yeah. I mean, and kudos to you for having an open enough mind when you were watching that presentation to say, oh my gosh, this could apply to me. Because I can imagine myself in a situation and being like the skeptic, like, but not my kids, but we got them as babies, you know? I think you would agree too. It's just good parenting. It's relational parenting. And so I think that's the other thing that was, that makes me sad. Um, You know, I had people telling me, you need to spank your kids more. You need to, you know, that getting suspended at young ages, all this kind of stuff that was really stressful. But once you learn about, you know, trust-based relational interventions and really sitting with them and having this relationship moving forward, uh, it's just good parenting. And I found myself wanting to tell everyone that this could look different. And I remember I did an interview once with Brian Post and and he was talking about fear-based parenting. And his comment was, you know, those people may have a great, great power over their children, but when they no longer do, they're not coming home for Thanksgiving, you know, because they've lost the relationship piece. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. Like we, we can come alongside our kids and not quote unquote be their best friend, um, but also not stand over them with a fear-based controlling approach. And he's right. We actually already talked about this in an episode about older kids, but you definitely can't control what they do after 18 and they will stop coming home. <laughs> yeah. Or 14 or 16. You know, I think that's, that's the hard part is that, you know, I have a good friend of mine that we often joke about, you know, we, I was definitely the world's greatest parent with no children. And then you're the world's greatest parent to teens with no teens. Right. 
And so, but I would see, you know, I can't believe they let their kids do that, you know, and I can't believe they don't keep their kids home. And I'm like, well, what if they tell their kid to stay home and the kid walks out the door? You know, it's like right. there's a different mindset around, you know, building that relationship. So they stay because they want to stay and they feel safe in your home and they trust you and they know that you've got them. So talk a little bit about your adoption experience and how it led you to what you're currently doing now, because you work now with a lot of families bringing kids home from the hospital. Our hospital experiences were just so vastly different. So we had with our older child with Brie, um, my daughter, just a really positive hospital experience. Um, we felt really supported by the staff and they really taught us to parent. And again, we we're coming out of infertility and, and really were pretty vulnerable at that point. So I was really happy about that. Um, again, my son came home a little older and then my youngest, our hospital experience was just the polar opposite. We, I think because we had such an open relationship, they just weren't quite sure what to do with us. And I found myself getting frustrated because this was, you know, she asked me to be this child's mom months and months and months ago. And so I felt like I was constantly trying to convince people I was the mom. And um, I often joke that I was, I think now the nurses and doctors bless their hearts for what they dealt with with me because, you know, when you lose control and you get scared, we certainly act out. So I was not pleasant by any means during that. It was, it really made me stop as an educator and say, what do nurses and doctors know about this? Like this concept of openness, my son is now almost 17 and his birth mom is amazing. She was at his 16th birthday last year. They have a great relationship. It seems so unfair that for one, the family, that every staff member, kind of the approach from that healthcare professional would shift so I could have a really supportive nurse and then one that's really off-putting and doesn't like what's going on. And also I was getting feedback from other families telling me that, you know, one family on a Tuesday would have a great experience at a local hospital here in Denver. And then on Friday, I'd get a call from someone that said, oh my gosh, we were at this hospital. It was terrible. And it was the same hospital. So it was always, it always came down to, well, tell me about what happened. And they'd say, well, there was this one doctor, there was this one nurse. And so um, I did some investigating and found there was, there was no curriculum. There was no content that was being shared with healthcare professionals. How unfair to put them in that position. We call it the wedding and the funeral in the same room. And so um, without any understanding of what's going on, the ambiguous loss, that mom saying goodbye to their child, this family coming in, maybe they have met the mom, maybe they haven't. Super complicated dynamics. And the healthcare professionals are like, we just have to wing it. We don't know really what to do. So I was at that point in 2004, I proposed a program to um, see if I could just come in and help with adoptions at a local hospital here, Parker Adventist Hospital. And I spent 10 years creating um, just a program that was hospital-based adoption support. And in that time, I found I started meeting women earlier and earlier in their pregnancy because if they were looking at adoption or someone said, hey, if you thought about looking at adoption, you could go talk to this lady at Parker. <laughs> you know, she, she does this program. And what I found is I could start talking to them about what they were worried about. Like, tell me why you're looking at adoption. And we had opportunities to connect them with parenting resources that they didn't have to do adoption. You know, they were actually able to go on and go ahead and parent. And so it became more and more important to have these conversations in the hospital and in the doctor's offices with moms about how they're feeling about parenting and really empower them early on so that they didn't um, feel that was their only choice. You know, who's having those conversations kind of thing. And we didn't know we created the only 
hospital-based program in the nation that was focusing on adoption and placements. And so um, it was pretty amazing. Four years ago, I stepped away from the hospital and started a nonprofit to share this model um, around the country with other hospitals. Call after call of people saying, how, how are you doing this? You know, what are you doing to, to help the nurses and doctors manage this? Um, and mostly we're just having them tap into their bereavement tools, what we know about hospice, what we know about bereavement and infant loss, and using those same tools when you're handling a situation where a mom's saying goodbye to her child. So it's been quite the journey over the last 14 years now. My gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> so you said something that made me wonder something. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Coming to adoption through infertility, do you feel like your perspective of birth parents and kids being parented by their birth parents and kids being adopted has shifted because of your experience and understanding just kind of how messy adoption is. And I, and I don't say this to like bash adoption by any sense, but to just understand, I mean, you've seen the gravity of it. Like you said, it's like a funeral and a wedding in the same room. Those are big emotions, really big life events. So, you know, and you said in your work at Parker, parents, moms would come to you and not realize that maybe there were resources and they did have the power and the strength and the bravery to parent. So has your perspective of birth mom's adoption changed at all over the last 20 years? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I think for a lot of different reasons, it's changed because I've seen way too many moms come to me and say, I just didn't know. I didn't know what was available to me. They made decisions within their pregnancy, whether they had chosen adoption and didn't know about parenting resources, or they were parenting and struggling and no one had ever talked to them about adoption. Maybe they chose to have an abortion and no one had a conversation with them about openness. And they had this idea that they would, they could never do that because they could never not quote unquote, not see their child again. Um, and that makes me crazy. I think that our pro-education platform, as we call it, at Family to Family Support Network, is just about making sure people have the information. And this is a really volatile time, um, certainly in women's healthcare. I think we all can agree with that. But the sad thing is, is I think the downfall has been education. I think that's where we've lost the most because there's a lot of assumptions that are made. Um, you know, there was a research study that came out that asked um, when they there was some information statistically about the fact that of all pregnancies, half are unplanned. And of those, just less than half parent, just less than half have an abortion and less than 1% will choose adoption. Some studies were, you know, they were trying to find out why is that? And they asked, you know, where, where would you go for information um, about adoption if you wanted just to learn about it? And um, the number one place was the internet. And when they asked where the least trustworthy place would be, number one was the internet. The internet. I was so, going to say, because the internet yeah. clearly is where we should get all of our good information. <laughs> well, and the hard thing, I mean, absolutely. And then they said, well, where would be the most trustworthy place to find information about adoption? And 93%, it was the highest statistic in the whole study, said hospitals and healthcare. And there's nothing there. No one's having these conversations. And I think there's probably two reasons from what we've heard from OBs and clinics, and that is... If they want information, I don't know where to send them, which is why we're hoping our network will be set around every hospital. And also, I don't want to offend her. I don't want to say to her, I think you should choose adoption or have you thought about adoption? Because it might be a message that says, I don't think you can do this. 
So what we're actually advocating is that in every OB office, every single mom has that conversation. Tell me about your pillars of parenting. Tell me about what's your plan. What are you most worried about, about being a mom? What can we pull in now resource wise? So you're empowered to move forward. And have you thought of someone else parenting? You know, you can look and having ethical adoption resources for her keeps her off the internet, which again, we know that can be so detrimental with what's going on kind of nationwide with um, matching and whatnot on the internet for a lot of families. It's um, leading to a lot of heartache, a lot of scams, et cetera. So that's what we're really trying to do is get up in front of that. So has my perception changed? Absolutely. I wish that these conversations, what I saw at Parker Hospital was when they thought through their decision, they looked at all their parenting resources, they still felt they weren't in a place to parent and they chose adoption. There was a level of peace that I saw in them much more so than those that just came in and walked in and said, I'm just quote unquote, giving up my baby and how they felt going through the process at the hospital. It was vastly different when they'd had a chance to look at their options and learn actually what was available to them. Mm, So important. Um, The thing that's interesting to me as you're telling your story and I'm thinking, you know, your perception of people and the compassion you have and your passion for educating, it's like connected parenting in all the other aspects of your life because you're looking at even thinking about the doctors and nurses that maybe gave you a not so great experience, you know, with your third adoption, um, instead of saying like, oh gosh, like that was awful of them and and putting all the blame <laughs> there. You know, there's this like, oh gosh, maybe they just didn't know. You know, maybe they there's just a need there. And I think if we just looked at everything in our lives as, you know, if something difficult is going on thinking like, oh, is there an education need or is there some other need there? So what a cool opportunity you've created for yourself to be in that space. Talk more about what it can look like or how it can feel in a hospital experience when there isn't great education, you know, kind of what's the like worst case scenario? You know, probably the worst case scenario I heard just the, uh, just this summer, we went and visited a hospital, um, some hospitals in Louisiana. We have, we're now in the process of implementing 13 hospitals and um, our latest two, we were visiting with an agency that works with them. The, the comment was made that a, that a patient had chosen adoption and was waiting to be discharged. And a doctor came in and he sat on the bed and he said, I'm not discharging you until you do the right thing. Uh-huh. And he walked out. You know, his stance being very much so that you step up and you parent a kid and you don't, you don't hand a child to someone else. And a huge part of our training is getting people to stop and look at their biases and look at what they carry into each and every situation with their patients. And so I, we literally, the room was just silent when we heard that because we thought we don't know that patient's story. We don't know. We actually had been, you know, bragging about how great my daughter's hospital experience was and what we'd gone through. But then I actually found out 10 years later from her birth father, they were really pressured to parent as well. You know, you can do this. She's special. And they just finally left a day early because they couldn't, they couldn't push back on the pressure they were receiving from nurses and doctors to parent. And I had no idea that that had happened um, in that scenario. So I don't ever think it's malicious. Well, it's rarely malicious that a healthcare professional will like um, go against the, the needs or the wants of a patient. But 
what we always talk about is how do you give them voice and choice in that situation? So the she's getting quote unquote too attached is something we hear often from healthcare professionals. And um, an example being, you know, we had a teenager that delivered at um, Parker and I'll never forget her. Her parents were like trying to guard her from getting too close to the baby. And I'm like, she's attached. She just carried that baby for nine months. You know, that idea of trying to stop any further bonding as being, you know, a goal um, was super detrimental for her. And I finally said to her, you know, do you want some time with your son? And she was like, I can, can I do that? I'm like, absolutely. And her parents, they were very upset with me because they looked at me like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? And I was like, no, she, this is, she needs this and she's asking for it and said she wants this. And so I got her set up on in the recliner and tucked her little son on her chest. And I said, I'll come back in a little bit. So I came back in and checked on her and she'd been crying and, and she just said, okay, I'm ready. I said, are you, I said, are you sure? And she goes, yeah, I just had to tell him why. And she sat there and had a whole conversation with her son and um, really just had to tell him everything. And I look at that gift she was given to have the time that she wanted and needed, but no one was asking on the precept that they were just going to keep them apart. Uh, I feel, again, how can she leave as whole as possible? And she'll never, she'll always have that loss. But being able to have those conversations with these patients, we used to give them stationery that was blank and just say, if you want to you know, write a letter, you can write a letter. And um, we had one adoption that was very closed. She didn't want to see the child or anything, but before she left, she said, you know, Rebecca, can you make sure that she gets this? And it was a full page, you know, why I'm doing this, how much I love you, what it was like to have you in my belly. I mean this, and I've learned from adoptees, that's just gold for that child. So being able to offer that for the adoptee as well, and, and really putting value, not on this idea of getting adoptive parents in the hospital, but to put value on that mom and that baby, and then this transition that can happen to that adoptive family if that's what that patient chooses. So you said something really interesting, that nine months, I think, gosh, we always forget about that nine months, which is funny, right? Because having been pregnant, it's a long nine months. You know, what do you wish more people understood about that nine months? I, I wish that people, especially again, since now I train healthcare professionals and, and sadly that takes me away from, from patients and moms and kids, except for those that I already have relationships with, but having an understanding that because she's making this decision does not make it any less difficult and that it is still loss. And for her, she'll never be the same. I mean, that there will forever be the time before that baby was born and the time after that baby left her arms. And I think that there's this kind of idea that since that's a decision that she's making, that she doesn't deserve the same grace and understanding in her grief as someone that maybe has gone through an infant loss. So I think if we can reframe that time in the hospital and the time leading up to it and the understanding of her loss after that baby leaves her arms, I think everyone will be more whole. It puts her in a better position having a relationship with her child with openness I think if we don't deal with the hard stuff, openness is very difficult, you know, because everyone's got this unspoken grief and loss, but they're being told to just kind of all get together and kumbaya, be happy, and everybody just have contact. And that's what I feel like we were told, you know, again, 20, 18, 16 years ago, we really have joked kind of that guinea pig generation of openness and we didn't know how to do it. Yeah, that's important. You talked about that nine months for the mom and then to flip that around, you know, it's a relationship. So 
nine months for a child, which we think, you know, there's so much going on there or not going on there, not verbal, no explicit memories, but to just circle back around to your story, now that your kids are a little bit older, have you seen the impact of that loss? Because two of your kids came to you pretty much from the hospital. So the only history they really had without you was those nine months. And do you see in their stories and in how they process their identity and their stories that that nine months was important? Oh, absolutely. I think it was important for them. And then I think it's pivotal as a filter for what the, what society tells them about that nine months and their birth parents and the part they played and how they felt during that. And, you know, I'm very obviously open about talking about adoption with my kids, but it's amazing to me to go out and see society be so clueless about them and the things that they would say and the things that they still do say um, about their birth parents. And I know the immense love that they have for these kids. And so I think that stereotype of, you know, and it, it comes back to that idea of it is lost because there is often a very passionate love they have for this child to make this decision. The, the disconnect there for society is super frustrating. And I think it is one of the reasons that women may choose not to, to place a child for adoption because of the way that society perceives that. And I have many, many women that worked with me at the hospital that just don't tell anybody anymore. They don't tell anyone they had another child. They don't tell anyone they placed a child because of how insensitive and how, how clueless people are about it. So I think watching that with my kids has been hard. I can see why people wanted to bury this concept because man, when it's out on the table, there's a lot of hard processing that's going to help them be better. But I can see why it was tempting to just say, oh, but if we just all don't talk about it and pretend that everything's fine, you know, and kumbaya, um, that can, that can be pretty tempting when you know you have to have hard conversations about the stuff that kids said to them on the playground or, you know, a family member making a comment to them that, that hurt their heart that they tell you at, at night. Although I will say from watching families who have tried to sweep everything under the rug and have a kumbaya open edition, it doesn't really fly. So there's even, yeah. it seems like a bad idea, but then even if it seems like a good idea, it's an idea that yeah. just really doesn't play out very much. Yeah. We kind of joke that it's the beach ball you push underwater. It's going to pop up somewhere else. <laughs> you, know? you can keep trying to just push that down underwater, but it will, it will come back. Well, and how freeing for your kids because to have a mom who understands that separation, albeit at birth in two of your kids' cases, was significant. Because as an adoptee, I remember thinking, am I having feelings about my abandonment? Probably not. I mean, I don't remember it. You know, I, I felt like I grew up pretty well adjusted. I love my family. I, you know, I didn't struggle in the kind of stereotypical ways that a lot of other adoptees, a lot of our kids have struggled. Um, but I almost didn't even feel like I had permission until I was an adoptive mom researching trauma and researching just the effects of changing primary caregivers, even if it was from womb to the, you know, to the world. And so just the freedom for them to be able to say, I have these feelings and someone can validate them and I'm not alone in it and, and they're real and it's a thing. I just think that's beautiful. No, I think you're exactly right. 
even though there's certainly times I think for them that they're like, really mom, like, you know, as far as us being soap and having these conversations, but then it's not uncommon for six months later for something else to come up that's tied to another conversation that was tied to another conversation. And I think you're right. I think the idea, I still have people when I talk to them about, we'll use the example of my son's birth mom being at our, the birthday party. I still have people that'll go, is that hard for you? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like, I love it. But I mean, there is this perception still of this one and only as this either or concept with family. And, you know, again, I know my kids see that too, that there, there's this unspoken rule that you have one mom and one mom only, and you, you can't have any understanding or any confusion about anything else, you know? So I think that's another piece of it is how much we put those expectations on our kids and then how much can we come back in and say, no, it's okay that you miss her. You know, I remember when my mom passed away 10 years ago and, and I remember my daughter saying, mom, we lost our moms too. We understand. And I'm like a mess sobbing and they did. And I think for them to be able to tell me that as a mom was huge. My 10 year old sitting with me and being like, it's okay. I lost my mom too. And knowing that I wasn't going to be angered by that or hurt by that or feel like she just you know, broke my heart because, well, wait a minute, I thought I am your mom, you know, et cetera. <laughs> so I think there's really that, that idea of being able to share them like that. We always say love's not pie. You don't get less, you know, if you, if you pass it around for more other people to have it, it multiplies. It doesn't divide. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could do an entire episode just on that concept because I look at different situations and different families and open adoption situations. And we're even in a situation where We've had to bring alongside other people to help us raise our kids. And I feel like everyone loses out when you get possessive about kids. Mm-hmm. And I get Absolutely. that there's attachment and kids need a primary caregiver. They need an attachment relationship. They need to learn how to have a healthy relationship. But adoption is messy and our kids come with lots of different relationships, more relationships than the standard infant comes with. And I feel like we're constantly working against the world because we really want to just, we really want to instill in our kids. You're blessed to have so many people that love you so deeply, love you like a mom, you know, and yes, does, is it, does it hurt? Is there grief? Is there a process to go through about the people that you've lost and how you don't have contact with some of those people anymore? Yes. But like how many people can say, you know, this person loved me with so much love, like a mom, because a mom's love is special. Like it's, you know, whether you're an adoptive mom or a foster mom or a birth mom, like it's not just like the love that a teacher or Sunday school teacher or an aunt, or, you know, it's just, it's different. And to have three women, four women in your life that loved you with that intensity is, should be seen partially as a gift, even in the messiness of, loss and grief and all of those things. Yeah. And well, and I think that brings up a really good point though, because there is a level of investment though, when you have others that want to love your kids, that they can't be a hit and miss short term kind of connection is what I've seen. Um, Cause again, what I don't want is having people step alongside and say, I'm going to be here and I'm going to help put scaffolding and love around this situation. And then they leave. And then we have another loss, you know, and I think that's a hard thing. I think that when people step up and say, I'm going to come around your kids, whether it's, you know, supporting foster care or those that have come home through adoption, international, whatever, that there is, there's not a level of investment and commitment that we have to have that I don't think other people do. 
because our kids are so much more vulnerable to that. They came, but then they left. I knew they'd leave, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a hard thing to have people commit to time. Yeah, absolutely. I see. I understand that too. And basically it's just messy. There's just not easy answers. And it is important. I think that being said for more and more people to understand how tricky it is to navigate, how messy it is, how much our kids are trying to process every day, you know, things that a lot of other kids don't have to. I love it. I had a a mom that I worked with that placed her son and she always calls adoption, the beautiful mess. And I love that because she acknowledges it. And I think what we also forget is that it's a beautiful mess mess when it happens. And I am honored to be there often in those early times or was. And then every life transition, there's another nuance to that. And I think that's one of the things we often forget too, is that people talk so much about attachment and bonding when kids come home and when they quote unquote came home, it's kind of the concept of having a lovely wedding and a beautiful marriage. Like it, it's a continued process and it's a continued process when they switch schools or when they, you know, have a family member pass away or when they have a best friend that leaves or, you know, there's all these touch points for every single person in the constellation of adoption. And so it's really not, it's not a one and done. Like we so often used to think that it was. And I think sadly, without good training, parents are kind of taught, especially in domestic newborn adoption, it's one and done. Like you just bring the baby home and then like you that's go. that's the end of the journey, the end yeah, of your infertility journey, the end of your adoption experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, again, I think especially in domestic newborn adoption, that it is, it is sold as that concept. And the sad thing is, is if you jump on that parenting path and you're just skipping down your child, they'll show you if they have other needs. It's just, how do you get that even on your radar that they might have different needs because of the loss they've gone through? if no one ever talks to you early on. I mean, you could mistake it for any number of other things if you're not having that on your radar for sure. So something else that family to family, I think I heard a little birdie told me might be jumping into is working with pediatricians, helping pediatricians understand this part of relationship trauma and understanding why some kids struggle. Is there anything there that you can share with us? Well, you know, again, having been that family with three kids and struggles in different ways with different, different kiddos, um, there is such a concept that, you know, we know the Academy of Pediatrics, American Academy of Pediatrics has a whole document about trauma and kids that have come home through foster care and adoption. And, um, but again, I think there is still that idea that if they came home as babies and they come home through that means there's really no need to make sure those parents have trauma parenting tools or, you know, understand the way their children's brains can look different from cortisol and pregnancy. And, you know, I don't fault birth parents by any means, birth moms, that there would be impact on their child's, you know, brain during pregnancy. I mean, we know that's the case when a baby goes into the NICU. We know it's the case when a mom's working two jobs and she's pregnant and trying to get all her hours in because she's going on maternity leave. Like that baby's bathed in cortisol. So it's not just about these birth moms, but if our pediatricians are so limited in their understanding, they're going to go straight to the meds. So they're going to, they're not going to have the conversations to say, you know, what was that pregnancy like for your child? Even again, if they came home through adoption, what was that pregnancy like? 
and what other tools might you need to be successful as a parent. So, you know, so much of what we've done, I actually trained a pediatrician's office here south of Denver and he, gentleman had been a pediatrician for over 40 years and he's like, this is the best training I've ever had. I keep thinking of all these kids that I wish I would have known this information before. And I cringe when I hear that, but it's what keeps me up at night and keeps me doing what I'm doing. Cause I don't, I just cringe when people say, I wish I would have known sooner. Yeah. Oh, and I'm just thinking what another fabulous layer of support and another way, like if you hadn't stumbled across a training in your job, the beauty of having a pediatrician that was trained and informed and knew maybe could have said to you earlier on, you know, have you ever thought about this? And I think so often in the world we're told if something's not right with your kid, go to your pediatrician. And, and that's true for so many things. And like you said, for people don't know where else to turn. And so that's going to be the first place that they go. And it would be beautiful if our pediatrician (laughs) had some of these answers, because just like you, I work with way too many families that went to their pediatrician and then they went to a psychiatrist and then they went to a they went to way too many people where no one was able to pinpoint the relational trauma piece and start putting the pieces together. And so that parents could have that light bulb moment way earlier. (laughs) Well, and you look at it too. I mean, the core of our training is serving the unique family and we want healthcare professionals to offer neutral, compassionate care. So if you're setting up an environment, a culture shift within healthcare that offers neutral, compassionate care, you're going to feel safe as an adoptive mom to come in and say, this is just, something's not right. Like we're kind of, we're struggling with stuff that others don't seem to be struggling with right now. And, you know, my son and I have an ongoing joke about like the shame sheet that you have to fill out every time we go to the pediatrician. I am like their worst nightmare when I go. I'm just going to be confess myself because I'm like, I, we have struggles in our house that I don't want to talk about vegetables. Like God bless you people, but I don't want to tell you how many vegetables my kids don't eat. And, um, that concept, even of having to be hiding what you're struggling with for fear of the judgment, you know, that's not a presence of neutral, compassionate care. And so trying to open up that understanding that what does it feel like to parents to be reprimanded every time that your kid's on screens too much and you're not eating the right stuff and you're not giving them apple juice, are you? And blah, 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 blah. And then think, gosh, am I really going to tell you my kid's really struggling right now? That's not, doesn't feel like a safe space. And so when we start opening that neutral, compassionate care approach, I had a nurse tell me, I used to look at my patients and just think of them in that 12 hours. And now you make me think of what they came in with and where they're going. And that was like, that makes me so happy because that's what we all need. We all need people to understand us in a place where you understand where I've come from and you care where I'm going. You're not going to just come in and do a 12 hour shift, wash your hands of it and walk out. None of us need that. Oh my gosh. That's such a beautiful story. I don't know. Can we do that for dentists too? I feel like that's the place I experience the most shame in my life is at the dentist office when they ask me if I floss. <laughs> Holy cow. I'm like, dude. I know. It's true. We all lie. Who are you kidding? I I'm like, no, you're right. Like, I, them. I, I actually kept people alive this week. I didn't floss my teeth. Are you out of your mind? Good gracious. <laughs> No, it's true. And I think that that's, I mean, we, we have lost this whole section that could be supporting our families. 
we haven't been coming alongside women when they're facing unplanned pregnancy. We and do those kids up in, in end up in foster care? Do they end up in a struggling parenting home? Do they end up in a family through adoption that doesn't have the right tools? Like we really have this potential in healthcare to give information and empower families. And right now we're not doing any of that. I, I know I'd mentioned to you offline that we our adoption support program has now crafted into this unique family support. And unique families are adoption, surrogates, maybe they've had a miscarriage, maybe they've got substance use disorder, maybe they've gone through domestic violence, maybe they, I mean, there's so many reasons that a patient comes in that's not a typical in-the-box situation. And so this model that was created around adoption is now early intervention, plan out your delivery time and do a warm handoff to resources in your community. So you're not just sent out the door at discharge and nurses aren't thinking, man, I hope that, that baby's okay. You know, cause that's what they were telling us. They're telling us, I, I don't feel like I have the tools. Case managers and hospitals are totally overwhelmed because they're being asked to care for all these connections for unique families. So if we can move all that support upstream, and work with OB offices, with clinics, with schools, with churches, all of that, we can build some early scaffolding and education around these families before that baby's ever born. And how good does it feel to talk about things you may see in your children before the child's ever born than when you're dealing with your own struggle with behavior? Because then it's just like, oh, by the way, in this situation, these are some behaviors you might see. And then when you see them, you go, oh, they told me these were some behavior. It's not about me. Because again, as parents, we just love to make it about us. You know, we love to find the things that we think we can change in ourselves and make ourselves nuts. So it's so nice to use that preemptive, proactive conversation to empower families. And right now it's not happening. Oh gosh, what a beautiful picture. Well, so thank you so, so much for sharing your experience, sharing your passion, sharing your knowledge. Thank you again for being here. No, I really appreciate it. Anytime. You know, I appreciated this interview with Rebecca because she spoke to my heart about some things that are very important to me. And, you know, most of our listeners know that my part in the triad is not just as an adoptive mom, but also as a birth mom. And as a birth mom who was young and delivered my baby in the hospital, I had a very, very difficult experience there. And so what Rebecca's doing with family to family support is really important. And um, the fact that I think that she's so cautious to be very ethical in her work and to support um, young or not necessarily young, but pregnant women in whatever choice they make is also really important to me. So I'm just really thankful that we did this interview. I wanted to mention that we're working on an episode on surviving the holidays. I know this is a really hot topic and that, you know, coming into what I call the Burr months, um, September, October, November, December, there are a lot of holidays in those months and holidays can be extremely dysregulating for our kids. And so we are asking you guys, the listeners, to give us your best tips for surviving the holidays. And we'd really love to hear your voices, the listener voices in this episode. So you can leave us your best tips at 208-741-3880. 
Um, we will also include that number in the show notes. Don't worry. It doesn't ring to anywhere. No one picks up. It's literally just a listener hotline where you can leave us a message. And so you can just, um, there's instructions when you call in on how to do that, but you basically just leave your first name and your best tip. And we will in be able to include that in our holiday survival episode. So we really appreciate in advance you guys being able to contribute to that. To find out more about Rebecca's work, visit familytofamilysupport.org or look them up on Facebook. You can also find a link on our show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash nine. We've come to the part in our podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener question. This week's question is, what should I look for when seeking a mental health professional to work with our family? Melissa, you want to tackle that one? Yeah. So obviously, all mental health professionals are not created equal, unfortunately. And so they come from all walks of life and beliefs and education. Our experience tells us that there are a couple things that are really important to look for in a mental health professional. And so it's really important to definitely interview or kind of really vet a mental health professional well before you commit to working with one with your family. So having a trauma-informed professional really trumps everything. Obviously, there are a lot of other things that we would love to see in our mental health professionals. Maybe it's someone who shares your faith or you know has experience in adoption, but when I work with families, they find the most helpful information and the, have the best relationships with folks that are trauma-informed. Um, you also want to look for someone who is at least amenable to connection and relationship-based strategies. So we talk a lot on the podcast here about what we call either connected parenting or trust-based relational intervention, TBRI. And so these are just relational-based strategies that are not necessarily cause and effect strategies. Some of those cause and effect strategies are things like cognitive behavioral therapy or other just talk therapy. Um, those are tools that are really hard for our kids to access and have success with. Um, you also want to talk with your potential provider about whether or not he or she works with your children together or apart and you know, you need to think about how that would look for your family. For older kids especially, I know it's super controversial, but we found someone that we pretty much trusted with our lives. And so we wanted our older kids to be able to meet with our therapist individually um, because they had kind of had that sense of independence. They didn't necessarily trust us. And we really felt like us having to be in their sessions was a hindrance to them being able to explore some of the things that were really hard from their past. But again, you need to know your children, know your therapist, things like that. And then I also really believe in the mind-body connection. And so I would look for someone who is open to holistic approaches and other therapies and body work and kind of some of the cutting edge modalities that we know can really help our bodies process and heal trauma more effectively. Those are great thoughts. I want to add from my own experience, when you're doing um, real attachment work, especially, you know, we're not talking about teens here, we're talking about younger kids. If you're doing attachment work and therapy for that purpose, then you do want to be 
in the room with your child because you're you're not wanting your child to build attachment to their therapist. You're wanting them to build attachment with you. And a well-trained, trauma-informed, attachment-oriented therapist will know that. That was really important to us when we were looking specifically for to meet that need with our kids. Yeah. And I think for sure, either way you look at it, you definitely want someone who understands that children that are scared and really fragile can tend to triangulate or, you know, kind of spin the truth or even put adults on different sides of the, you know, line in the sand, if you will. And so it is really important whether you're meeting, you know, in session with your child or a mixture of both to make sure that your therapist understands that triangulation is a thing so that you and your therapist can always stay on the same side and your therapist can be pointing your children back to you as an attachment figure. I absolutely agree. That is very, that's probably one of the most important factors when you're looking for a therapist for kids who come from hard places and have been adopted or you're doing foster care. So that's great. Thank you for that. We've created a downloadable guide that talks more in depth about this subject. You can grab that resource at our website at theadoptionconnection.com slash nine. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send us an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com. You can also call our listener hotline at 208-741-3880. That line is not monitored or answered, so it's literally just a place where you can record a message. And then also, if you need more personalized help, we do offer private coaching for more info on that, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week... You're a good mom, doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.